past few weeks, I've spent most of my free time glued to the news, given everything that's going on in the world right now, from the protests to the pandemic. But yesterday, my husband and I decided to go for a long walk in the park after work. It was a hot evening in New York, and people were making the most of being outside. On the way back, I spotted something out of the corner of my eye and did a double take. A fully naked older man was sitting on his windowsill with the window flung open, just living his best life. I pointed this out to my husband, who laughed and told me to stop looking. Most people wouldn't look if they saw a fully naked man hanging out of a window, he said. I vehemently disagreed. I definitely think most people would sneak a peek. But... I work at 538, and you can't just make broad claims about what people think without data to back it up. So I did the only logical thing. I called both of our mothers. Obviously, they agreed with me. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. This week, we'll explore a COVID mystery, why the novel coronavirus, which is typically a respiratory infection, can sometimes affect other parts of the body. And later, we'll hear about some excellent news out of New Zealand. But first, we're going to dig into a scientific controversy, one that's already had major implications for COVID research and could influence the future of scientific publishing. You've probably heard about hydroxychloroquine, a malaria drug that's being tested as a treatment for COVID-19 patients. But I will say that uh, I am a man that comes from a very positive school when it comes to, in particular, one of these drugs. And we'll see how it works out, Peter. I'm not not saying it will, but I I think uh, that uh, people may be surprised. By the way, that would be a game changer. But we're going to know very soon. But, But we have ordered millions of units... Many experts were skeptical that hydroxychloroquine could either treat or prevent COVID, since it had only been tested in a few very small trials. A number of groups, including the World Health Organization, began large trials to find out whether the drug could treat the disease. But in the meantime, many physicians began using it for their COVID patients, and the FDA approved it for use in the sickest people. Then, on May 22nd, a paper published in the respected medical journal The Lancet suggested that hydroxychloroquine might actually be harmful to people with COVID-19. The paper, which drew from a database of more than 96,000 patients from 671 hospitals in six continents, was by far the largest study to date. The paper wasn't based on a randomized controlled study, the gold standard of scientific research, but its conclusions were worrisome enough that the WHO and several other agencies suspended their ongoing clinical trials into the drug. But just a few days later, experts began questioning on Twitter whether the paper's findings were real. They noted glaring flaws in the study's methods and problems with the data itself, which was collected by a company called Surgisphere. When journalists and Twitter sleuths dug into the company, they found that despite its ostensibly impressive data on patient health and outcomes, it only seemed to have a few employees, most of whom were not experts in the field. Last week, The Lancet formally withdrew the study after three of the study's four authors said they had no faith in the Surgisphere dataset. 
Surgisphere refused to share its data with independent reviewers, citing patient privacy concerns. But many experts who analyzed the study believed that the data was fabricated. Surgisphere's founder, Sapan Desai, who was one of the paper's authors, did not respond to our request for comment on the retraction and the fraud allegations. Scientists are still wondering, how did one of the world's top medical journals miss what appeared to be, in retrospect, obvious statistical flaws in the study, numbers that made no sense, and possibly fraudulent data? With the help of 538 contributor Sarah Reardon, we talked to some of the experts who called attention to the paper's problems and asked them about how Twitter could help reform the peer review process and the need for better care and oversight of science in the age of COVID. So the pandemic has really brought into uh, view this this concern about kind of moving quickly um, and then having high standards. So where is that trade-off? That's Zoe McLaren, an expert in public policy at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She's among the self-described Twitter sleuths who found problems with the paper after it had been published. To be published in major medical journals, papers generally undergo peer review. After a paper is submitted to a journal, the journal sends it around to three experts who provide their feedback and recommend whether the paper is accepted. The journal's editors then decide whether to publish it based on these opinions. But this time, it seems, the peer review process went wrong. Dr. Babak Ziyan, a cardiologist at UCLA, explains how social media revealed the answers. In general, post-publication peer review is far more, um, is going to be able to do a lot more than the normal peer review process, because you're, you're depending on you know, thousands, millions of people on the internet who are experts to, to look at things compared to just three within a journal or three or five within a journal. And so they really complement each other pretty well. People were tweeting this blog post about how um, one of the tables in the Lancet paper didn't make any sense for the number of deaths in Australia. And so Um, That sort of made me wonder about, well, how sloppy was this study? As it turned out, very sloppy. For example, the patients were given a wide range of doses of hydroxychloroquine, many of which were much higher than the FDA recommends. And many of the numbers in the paper made no sense either. The number of deaths in Australia that Surgisphere had in its database was higher than the total number of deaths the Australian government reported. The authors also claimed that they had data from 4,402 people hospitalized in Africa. That's about 25% of the total known cases in Africa to date. That number is unreasonably high, given that in South Africa, only 5% of COVID-19 patients were hospitalized, and it seemed very unlikely that the percentage would be much higher throughout the rest of the continent. If Surgisphere really did have the records of that many African patients, the database would be a goldmine. I was kind of reading through that and thinking, wow, this data sounds, the way they were telling about it, sounds amazing. Super high quality, really wide coverage. I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe this is going to help us answer the question. Supposedly, the Surgisphere data set included detailed health information about each patient. There was information about their COVID symptoms and also any other risk factors they might have, like diabetes and obesity. But strangely, the researchers' analysis of COVID symptoms only included two health variables— 
A patient's COVID infection was either considered severe or not severe, even though we know that patients have a wide range of symptoms. This contrast of supposedly fantastic data and really kind of doing the minimum um, when it came to controlling for disease severity already kind of just seemed um, concerning to me. The other big thing to note about this research is that it was an observational study. In the best clinical trials, scientists randomly assign patients to get either the drug or a placebo and then compare the two groups. But the Lancet study compared hospital records of thousands of people who had already been given hydroxychloroquine to thousands who hadn't. Looking backward like this can be useful, but it can also present some issues. Hydroxychloroquine had been um, approved for for use in kind of the um, some of the worst cases, um, and so when there was a bit of a, as a last resort, and so when patients came in if they were fairly stable, then doctors might not pre- prescribe hydroxychloroquine for them yet. Might keep them for observation. Might do other types of um, treatments to uh, to help um, patients get better and recover from from COVID nineteen. And uh, But patients who showed up, even if they were fairly healthy but were deteriorating very quickly, those might be patients where you kind of thought you needed a bit of a Hail Mary pass. Basically, sicker patients might be more likely to get hydroxychloroquine and also might be more likely to die. So when I looked at that for this particular study, uh, the one in the Lancet, they were um, supposedly reporting the raw data, so before doing any kind of statistical adjustment. And it turned out that the groups looked, they were um, what we call very balanced. So the treatment group looked very similar to the control group. And so immediately I thought, well, that doesn't line up with my initial concern that the treatment group should be, people getting hydroxychloroquine should be different types of patients, sicker patients, patients that were deteriorating more quickly. Remember, hydroxychloroquine should mostly have been given to the sickest patients, which is why Dr. McLaren was expecting to see a difference between the treatment group and the control group. You'd expect people who didn't get the treatment to have milder symptoms. That in itself is one of the reasons observational studies like this can be problematic. It's not really fair to compare two very different groups. But these two groups had an incredibly even mix of severely and mildly ill people. Dr. McLaren said she's looked at hundreds of tables like this throughout her career. So immediately it kind of seemed too perfect. I thought initially, like, wow, this is really balanced. Wait a second, it should not be this balanced. Given the extent of the issues, some of the Twitter sleuths have made some pretty damning allegations about what went wrong here. It's still, you know, there's still a chance there's some other good explanation for it, but I, I there's so many problems with the papers that I have a hard time coming up with a theory other than this being fraud. So why didn't the peer reviewers at The Lancet notice that something was off about this paper? And and part of it is that COVID-19 propped the door open for this type of fraud to get through. Uh, People are, you know, strained with new work habits and, you know, everyone's stressed and trying to figure out, you know, mostly working from home when they can. Um, There's a ton of COVID papers and journals want to be the first ones to publish the most important ones. And so this paper had integrity because of the authorship. It had a huge sample size that was, there's been no COVID paper with this size of a patient population and super detailed um, information. And so that was what got it in the door. And unfortunately, it just wasn't caught at the right time. 
and it led to a lot of disastrous consequences. After these issues came to light, The Lancet asked Surgisphere to submit its data for review. It's important to note that many journals don't request data sets in advance of publication, especially if they include protected patient information. But Surgisphere refused to share their data, even after its authenticity was questioned. And supposedly, their data was de-identified, meaning that sharing it shouldn't have raised any privacy concerns. Without their data or statistical code, The Lancet couldn't verify that the research was legitimate, so they retracted the paper. And so when you look at the websites of the companies that supposedly are getting this data, it just becomes um, a really sad and tragic story and um, probably someone who flew a little too close to the sun and, and, and now got in a lot of trouble um, in terms of publishing scientific fraud. It is really rare to hear about cases and uh, of fraud. Um, and so there have been some major historic cases of that, but never has there been a situation where one group or one person published two papers within a few short weeks in the two most premier medical journals that were fabricated. Oh, about that. There was a second paper by the same group published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which used Surgisphere's data to suggest that the coronavirus affects blood vessels. That journal also retracted the paper after concerns came to light. Brigham and Women's Hospital, where several of the authors work, said in a statement that the researchers there believed the data would help answer questions about COVID-19 and then lost faith in the data set. Lead author Mandeep Mera, who was not a Surgisphere employee, wrote, It is now clear to me that in my hope to contribute this research during a time of great need, I did not do enough to ensure that the data source was appropriate for this use. For that, and for all the disruptions, both directly and indirectly, I am truly sorry. This whole episode brought to light a number of problems with the scientific process, but perhaps it's also taught us some lessons about how scientific publishing can improve in the future. So I think about this experience as actually showing um, the benefit of having post-publication peer review. So that means the paper's published with just a handful of people who looked at it, but then when the broader um, medical and statistical community and policy community uh, sees sees the paper that we're kind of then able to evaluate the quality of the evidence in a, in a somewhat different format. I'm reluctant to say that um, this won't happen again, but, you know, at least for now, every journal in the world is going to be, their first question is going to be, what is this database that you're using? And there's ways of preventing this that are pretty easy, but we don't currently do it. Um, a lot of people, you know, there's been a bit of movement for open science and sharing things more. So a lot of journals now require you to state why you can't share your data. For human subjects research, it's always because, you know, people could be identified and you can't share the database. So that's always going to be the case. But there's no reason why uh, authors shouldn't be required to share their statistical code. And then the next thing people, I think, should be checking is, if you're being, if you're seeing a paper with a very large database that you've never heard of, you should probably figure out if this late database is real. If it sounds too good to be true, you probably shouldn't trust it. 
thanks to 538 contributor and science journalist Sarah Reardon for reporting and writing this story for us. She conducted the interviews with the scientists you heard here. Many thanks again, Sarah. COVID has been with us for a few months now. And as you probably know, the virus doesn't affect everyone the same way. What can seem so weird is that while we think of this as a respiratory infection, some people's symptoms can affect parts of the body far from the lungs. Why does this happen? It's still something of a mystery, but our reporter, Kaylee Rogers, is on the case. So we have had reports of people having strokes after having COVID, heart failure, people lose their sense of smell, they experience confusion or brain fog, sometimes even after having recovered from the illness. Um, and then there's the COVID toes, which we've heard a bit about where people have uh, swelling and lesions on their toes. And often that's actually associated with people who have no other symptoms. And so it's showing that, that COVID doesn't necessarily only manifest in this one way. There are cases where it's causing other kinds of problems in people. So how common are these non-respiratory effects with COVID? We're still trying to nail that down, although it seems as though these symptoms are much less common than the sort of classic presentation of COVID. So a fever, chills, flu-like symptoms, that kind of thing still is the predominant thing that people are experiencing. Um, and these are, are less common, though we're still seeing them. People want to make sure that we're capturing all the different presentations so we know what to look for, how to treat it, and, and make sure we have a full understanding of the disease. Because the coronavirus has spread so widely and so many people have been infected, even if some of these symptoms only appear very rarely, we're going to hear about them because the, we have enough people getting it that that small percentage of people turns out to be enough to, to look at and pay attention to. And then the other fact is just we're all very obviously interested in this. This is a, a pandemic that has severely impacted our society and, and killed tens of thousands of people in this country alone. So naturally, we're going to be paying attention to every report and every little thing we might hear about it. Do we know what COVID is actually doing to these other parts of the body? So that's something that unfortunately is still part of the mystery that we're trying to figure out. There's sort of two different ways that this could be happening. One is that the virus itself is infecting different parts of the body. So it's getting into heart tissue or it's getting into the actual brain tissue and causing damage that creates these symptoms. The other thing that could be happening is the virus gets in and our body's immune response causes inflammation that creates these other problems for different organs and different systems in the body. And most likely, um, it, it could be both depending on the symptom, right? It could be that the heart problems are due to inflammation, but other things are due to the actual virus. And we're not going to know until we're able to do a lot more study. Does inflammation only happen if those tissues have been infected by the virus? Or can inflammation happen in one place when the virus is actually just in the lungs? Inflammation can have an effect and can be caused even if an actual virus isn't in that particular system. So one expert I spoke to, for example, said that the brain is often uh, impacted when you have inflammation all over your body. So if you have a cold, for example, and you're feeling achy and sore and, and stuffed up, even though your brain itself doesn't have any of the the infection in it, you're still impacted. You know, you feel kind of foggy or you're a little slower than normal. There's been a lot of talk about um, cytokine storms 
um, when we talk about inflammation being potentially related to some of these symptoms in COVID. Can you explain what a cytokine storm is? So a cytokine storm is basically just an overproduction of a certain kind of immune response where the immune response trying to fight off the infection actually starts to do more damage to the body than good. And we're hearing about it a lot with COVID, but it's actually not a a new phenomenon. It's been um, tracked with a number of different pathogens, bacteria, fungal, uh, other viruses. So lots of things can cause a cytokine storm. um, And exactly why some cause it and others don't depends on a number of factors. They think potentially there could be a DNA or a genetic component to it. Um, Those are still some of the things we're trying to unravel. Do we have evidence that the virus is actually infecting other types of cells around the body and not just lung tissue? So it's way too early to to make that kind of call uh, because we were dealing with an outbreak and a pandemic, you know, trying to get like, a liver sample from a patient in the middle of all this was, was not really possible. I heard that from a couple of different researchers. But now that things have started to, to calm down a bit, they're hoping that we can do sort of retroactive looks at things. And taking a look at people who have already died from the disease, we can do autopsy reports and be able to investigate and see if there's evidence of the virus in tissue samples of different parts of the body. Right. What are some other techniques that scientists and doctors are using to try to get to the bottom of why this virus seems to affect so many different parts of the body? So along with tissue samples and autopsy reports, animal studies can actually be really helpful because we're able to test out different things and and actually observe what parts of the body are being infected in different animals. And so mice, for example, have similar DNA to humans, so they're useful in that respect. Ferrets have a really similar respiratory system, and so we're able to look at it that way and also look at like transmission, for example. So different animals are going to give us different ideas, and because we're not having to infect humans, we're able to take a closer look at exactly what's going on. Um, that's not a perfect you know, one-to-one, but it gives us some good clues as to what might be happening in humans. Just as a side note, it is completely bizarre that ferrets have a, a similar respiratory system to humans. One researcher that I spoke to mentioned that mice not only don't have a very similar respiratory system, but they can't sneeze or cough, but ferrets can, which is just like the cutest thing I've ever imagined is a ferret sneezing. Um, and that can actually be helpful for studying transmission and things like that. So, Well, yeah, for sure. It must be very hard to study in a mouse model if they can't sneeze or cough. Right. So you'd be looking at different things there, um, viral load and sort of how it travels through the body, if different DNA um, changes the way that the mouse is infected, that kind of thing. How common or uncommon is it for a viral infection to influence multiple parts of the body? Right. So that was one of the biggest things I was curious about, whether there was something special about COVID. You know, we're hearing all these reports and it's like, what is this virus? Is it some kind of super bug that just infects the whole body? Um, But speaking to some experts about it, this is um, something that can happen with a lot of different infections, be it viral or bacterial or fungal. Um, A lot of them can infect different parts of the body, and it sort of depends on a number of different factors, sort of how you get it, the type of virus, your own personal body and immune system. And so all of these things that are being reported with COVID are things that can happen with other infections. They're not very common, but they do happen. Based on on research done on those other types of infections, what do we know about why certain people get some symptoms while others don't? Right. So there's a number of different things that can have to do with the individual person's uh, 
predispositions, DNA, things like that. It can also have to do with how much of the pathogen you're exposed to, or even things like the route of transmission. So with anthrax, for example, anthrax is a bacteria that causes an infection in people, but it causes a completely different disease presentation if you inhale it versus getting it in a cut, for example. And so there's all these different ways that the same pathogen can cause different symptoms, even though it's infecting a person. Is there any evidence that um, the route of transmission is one of the reasons that people are presenting um, COVID infections differently? I think that's something that researchers are looking at. So the idea that it's spread through through droplet transmission, there might be a slight difference if it's inhaled and sort of goes down into the respiratory tract versus sort of up into the olfactory area and might be more infecting the brain, might be infecting your sense of smell, that kind of thing. Oh, right. So some of the cases where we're seeing people like totally lose their sense of smell and taste might be that the virus is getting more into the nose area. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And not just that your sinuses get clogged in a in a very <laughs> profound way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, like with so much around COVID, because it's new and all these studies are just kind of beginning, we'll have a lot more answers after we can do the research. But it's good to know that this isn't something really scary and strange and unusual that they've never seen a virus do before or anything like that. It's within the scope of what pathogens do in our body. And it's just a matter of nailing down exactly what's happening in this case. Right. It's not some Frankenstein's monster. This is just how viruses work. We're just seeing it on a really large scale right now. Absolutely. Even the the seasonal flu, uh, you know, people have a higher risk of, of heart attack and stroke after having the seasonal flu. So, you know, something as benign as that that we're all kind of familiar with, we do know can have more severe impacts as well. Right. That makes sense. Um, well, Kelly, thank you so much for, for sharing this with me. I'm, I'm very grateful. Thanks so much. And now for a bit of good news. New Zealand announced this week that they've officially eliminated COVID in their country and are moving to reopen their economy. This came after 17 consecutive days of no new reported cases, even with extensive testing. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced on Monday that the country would be going to level one in their COVID recovery plan. At level one, we expect the continuation of recovery. After all, at Level 1, we can hold public events without limitations, private events such as wedding functions and funerals without limitations, retail is back without limitations, hospitality is back without limitations, public transport and travel across the country is fully opened. Basically, people can pretty much go back to business as usual. But while most activities are getting back to normal, travel abroad will still be restricted. The border is closed to almost all travel, though New Zealand citizens and residents can return home if they remain in managed quarantine or in isolation for 14 days. After all, while the country may be virus-free, that's not the case for the rest of the world. We are confident we have eliminated transmission of the virus in New Zealand for now. But elimination is not a point in time. It is a sustained effort. We almost certainly will see cases here again. And I do want to say that again. We will almost certainly see cases here again. And that is not a sign that we have failed. It is a reality of this virus. 
people are also encouraged to keep a diary or log of where they've been. So if or when the virus does manage to enter the country again, it will be easier for public health officials to track down anyone an infected person has come in contact with. New Zealand was able to get to this stage of recovery so quickly, in part due to a robust response to the virus early on in the outbreak. COVID-19 first appeared in the country in late February. 26 days later, they entered lockdown when they had just over 200 cases in the entire country. They also did a lot of testing. An estimated 5 million people live in New Zealand. And as of June 9th, the country had done over 298,000 lab tests. All told, according to the Ministry of Health's website on June 10th, the country only had 1,504 confirmed or probable cases of the virus, and only 22 deaths in total. The New Zealand government has released some additional golden rules for ways to stay safe as the country reopens. Common sense things like staying home from work or school when you're sick. But my favorite is the last rule, rule 10. People will have had different experiences over the last couple months. Whatever you're feeling, it's okay. Be kind to others, be kind to yourself. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Chad's a great editor, and I'm not just saying that because he agrees with me that most people would definitely look at the naked man in the window. <laughs>